Well, three of the Gospels record Jesus asking his disciples this question. Who do you say that I am? It's one of the most important questions you can ever respond to. Who is Jesus to you? Who is the Lord to you? Is he your Lord? Because so far in the book of Exodus, we have seen his glorious acts in redeeming his people from Egypt. We have seen his mercy in sparing their lives at Passover. We have seen him delivering them from all their enemies at the Red Sea. And yet all those physical acts, all those physical works were just meant to be pictures and signs of what God has been doing for His people all along through Jesus Christ in redeeming them from their sin, in delivering them from His wrath, in reconciling them to Himself. That all the physical events were meant to help them and help us see the Lord, know that He is the Lord, trust in Him as Lord that we would truly know Him that we would truly know Christ and the power of His resurrection, that we would love Him. So who is the Lord to you? Is He your healer, your great physician? Is He your daily bread? With Jesus and His Word, what nourishes you every day, every hour of every day? Is He your water, the very source of your life, the very source of your daily refreshment? Is He your banner, your refuge, your protector, the one who fights your battles for you? In other words, is He, the Lord, your provider, your protector? Or is He your Santa Claus? Is He your Disneyland tour guide? Is He your lucky charm? Is He your drug dealer? Is He your sugar daddy? Is He just a means to an end, just to make your life work? Is He a slave to your physical appetites, obligated to give you everything you think you ought to get in this life for it to be comfortable Otherwise, you throw a fit. I think Exodus 15, 22 and on just forces these questions upon us. The passage is like a big x-ray machine that just peers right inside our heart and shows us what's there, shows us what's scary about what's there, and then introduces us to the Lord for who He is meant to be to the human soul, to help us see Him for who He truly is and receive Him personally. Our main point this morning is that the Lord often brings us to hunger, thirst, and danger to humble us, to expose us, to reveal Himself to us, and to teach us dependence on Him. That the Lord often brings us to hunger and thirst and danger to humble us, to expose us, to reveal Himself to us, and then teach us dependence on Him, satisfaction in Him. 
And really, the people of Israel by this point in the story do not think they need this lesson. Their greatest dangers in their minds have been removed. Egypt has been destroyed. They've been taken out of captivity. We are ready for the promised land. Just get us there. And so they don't see the bigger problem, which is them. Just as we don't tend to see the biggest problem, which is us, the sinful desires of our hearts, the distrust of our Redeemer that's just lying dormant in our souls until that moment comes when He brings us into something painful, something uncomfortable, something not what we want, holds back what we do desire and demand, and then squeezes out of us all those areas of our life where He's really not enough. He's really not satisfying. And really, the Passover should have already alerted them to this bigger danger, this bigger trouble. When they're saying, okay, why do we have to do this Passover lamb thing? And he says, well, so that I don't come into your house and kill you. That should have tipped them off. Okay, so we're not different than the Egyptians when it comes to falling short of this Lord's glory. It's just he's provided an atonement for us. And even as they're now leaving the Red Sea, they are supposed to be alerted to that greater danger, but they're not seeing it yet. Hopefully they will soon. Verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God... And do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they encamped there by the water. So the Lord brings them from the Red Sea into a place with bitter water, and not because he hates them. Not because he didn't know the water was bitter. Not because he couldn't have made it sweet before they got there. But rather to expose the sinful condition of their own hearts and their true need for him. And then to use this event to reveal something glorious about himself. So the bitter water is going to reveal their bitterness toward the Lord. When he doesn't give them pleasant circumstances. And then he'll use that moment to show them something about himself. I, the Lord, am your healer. And you're every bit as sinful as the Egyptians, but I won't put all the diseases I put on them on you because I'm your healer. If you will take me by faith, if you will turn from your sin, if you will embrace me as your Redeemer, I'll be your healer. 
And then he gives them a physical taste of this in verse 27 by bringing them to Elim, a place with all these freshwater springs and palm trees. He could have just brought them there straight away. But then they wouldn't have heard and learned this vital lesson. Better to have bitter water and know that the Lord is your healer than sweet water and to forget it. That's his point. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're just a month after leaving Egypt. They're somewhere between the Red Sea and Sinai, and he brings them into a land without food. What will the people do? Well, verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Or the exact translation is complained fiercely. Fiercely complained. That's their response. They've seen God bring hail and fire from heaven. They've witnessed His mercy in accepting the Passover lamb in their place so that they can live and go free. They've seen Him part the Red Sea and bring them through and then destroy their enemies. They've seen Him heal bitter water so that they can drink. All forgotten. Long ago, out of their minds, two million hungry bellies produced two million angry souls and two million grumbling mouths. Listen to what they say in verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What a slap in the face of God. Not only do they forget the mighty works of God in delivering them from Egypt, they wish they'd never happened. Would that you had just killed us there before the whole redemption thing, before the whole freedom thing, before all your works, if you had only just let us die when we had some meat and some bread. How quickly we lose our minds when suffering how quickly God becomes the enemy when suffering. Notice what they do remember, just how great they had it in Egypt. This is how insane sin is. This is how mad we go apart from the grace of God and the Word of God. Is we all of a sudden look back on captivity and slavery at, with fondness. Oh, we had it so great. We had all that meat, all that bread. The slavery part is forgotten. All the misery of alienation from God is forgotten. Their bellies rule them, not the Lord. So the first question for us this morning is, what rules you? Your belly or the Lord? Your bank account or the Lord? Your status or the Lord? Climbing the ladder or the Lord? Your glory or the Lord? Your comfort and ease or 
the Lord? Your health or the Lord? What rules us? What rules me? Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather as a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Notice the extreme mercy of God toward his people. Though he could have just wiped them back into the Red Sea at this point. He could have just taken them back to Egypt said, oh, you like Egypt? Well, we can arrange this. Just his mercy. Instead, he promises to provide bread. In other words, he's not actually succumbing to their complaining, but doing what he always intended to do all along, and that is to feed them miraculously from heaven so that they can see the Lord. In other words, he's not being reactionary. He's being strategic. It's what he he intended all along, to bring him here, to expose this so that he could reveal something beautiful about himself. Verse 8, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. We must take this to heart. All their grumbling against earthly leaders, God says, weren't really against the leaders, but against him. All the horizontal bickering was actually vertical bickering, which is every bit as true for us. Notice verse 7, you're grumbling against the Lord. Verse 8, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. The horizontal conflict just expressed their vertical conflict. That's all. What you're doing here is actually what you're doing here. Your war with Moses just is exposing your war with me. I'm the one you really hate. I'm the one you're really grumbling at. I'm the one you really don't trust. And so the Lord is using hunger to reveal what's really inside them, and then Moses is just the one interpreting the scans on the wall. I'm going to use the situation, do the x-rays, put the scans on the wall, and Moses is saying, okay, let's take a look at what's here. Distrust of your Lord is here. He renders the diagnosis. So again, we see the wisdom and genius of God. He will use your spouse, your children, your parents, your job, your health, the weather, every other detail of your circumstances to show you what's really in you to show me what's really in me, what our deepest loves really are. And so when hurting, what comes out of you? When you really get squeezed, what comes out? How often, how easy is it to say, well, this isn't really me. It's just me under these circumstances. Well, under those circumstances is what's most us. We can think all day long that other people make us angry, other people make us anxious, other people make us unhappy, other people in circumstances make us do sinful things and say sinful things, when the Lord is just using all those people and places and things to expose what's really in us. 
That's what he means to test us. Not for the sake just of humiliation, not for the sake of condemnation, but so that we would see and deal honestly with what comes out and turn and repent because he is our healer. As we'll see in a moment, he is our bread. He'll use all those moments to expose what's been inside us all along. The idols we worship in the shadows, the sinful desires we carry in secret. In other words, the things that still enslave us after what used to enslave us. Because their thought is, yeah, it was Egypt. That's where the slavery was. He's like, no, there's a worse slavery you're in. And that's the slavery of sin. Verse 9, then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Again, just think about what a kind God that is. I've heard your grumbling, so come here and let me take care of you. Is that usually what we want to do with grumbling people? Look at all these grumbling people. Here, come close. Or is this usually where we say, okay, go figure it out and show up when you're happy? A number of times I've said that to my kids. <laughs> okay, go get happy, then come, we'll talk. And here's the Lord, it's the opposite. No, you're grumbling? Come here. Let me show you something. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Again, this theme of Exodus emerges. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He uses their hunger to expose their lack of faith, then uses that desperate situation to reveal his glory and power. In other words, you don't firstly need food. You firstly need to know that I'm the Lord. That's more important than food. How many of us believe that? More important than food is knowing that he is the Lord. More important than being fed is trusting him as Lord. More important than being satisfied in earthly things is beholding the glory of the Lord and worshiping. Only the Word of God is going to help us get those priorities right. Better to be hungry and know Him. Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. He says, you want to boast in something, boast that you know me. Not might, not riches, not power, not glory, not your own wisdom, that you know me, the Lord. So in verse 13, the Lord brought quail into the camp for them to eat. And in the morning when the dew lifted, according to verse 14, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground, the manna, the bread that the Lord gave them to eat. In verse 18, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. This is supernatural provision. God's saying, okay, there's no other way that you can explain this than I provided it for you. 
Your fathers haven't heard of anything like this. Generations before you haven't heard of anything like this. You've never seen anything like this. The only explanation, I fed you from heaven. Verse 19, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning. And it bred worms and it stank. Why? Well, because, I mean, is he really going to give it again tomorrow? I mean, yeah, he gave it now. He said he'll give it every day. Ah, let's hold a little bit over just in case. I mean, how many of us have plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, plan F? After God comes through, we try to arrange our life in such a way that if God delivers, hey, that's great. But if he doesn't, you know, we're cool. We'll work it out. And so, no, God lets their plans literally stink and breed worms so that we wouldn't rely on ourselves but trust in his provision. It also shows that when it comes to loving God and loving others, the word of God is very clear. It's not fuzzy. It's not confusing. Leave none of it over till morning. So they leave some of it over till morning. That's just how stubborn we are. That's how slow to learn, how slow to trust we are. The Lord says don't covet, so we covet everything. The human problem is not firstly ignorance of the truth, but suppression of the truth. Rebellion against him. It's going to keep playing out. Verse 22, and on the sixth day he gathered twice as much bread. They gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them and it didn't stink. There were no worms in it. Why? Because again, the Lord is miraculously sustaining and providing so they can have a day just to focus on the Lord. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. And so just as the Lord rested from his work on the seventh day, so now he invites his people to join him in a day of rest on the Sabbath day, just to enjoy him, just to reflect on him, just to think entirely of him, to gather together in worship of him, to not worry about gathering food or work or earning an income or being busy at the affairs of life, just to be still and delight in their God. It's a gift to them. Verse 27, And on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, overwork never pays off. (laughs) We might think, okay, if I just work more, well, yeah, really, it'll just, you'll just, it'll blow off in the wind. And we see that they go out the last day and there's nothing. See, verse 29, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. That's the point. That's why you gathered twice is so that he would supply. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Some of the people at first refused to obey him because without faith, even the most simple 
commandments are impossible to keep. Without Christ giving us a new heart, without the Spirit of God filling us, without God giving us the mind of Jesus, the most basic, simple commandments are impossible. That's why the law, and by keeping the law, we will never attain the righteousness of God. We won't even go one step without failing. He says, don't go out and gather on the Sabbath, so they do it. He tells us, don't gossip or covet or complain or lust or be anxious or oppress, but rather love God and others and trust Christ, and yet every day we just stumble. And again, it's not so that we'll just feel condemned and hopeless and run away, but so that we would see and look to Him, that we would repent and turn to Him, that we would see, Lord, I, I can't keep this law apart from your grace. Help me. Verse 31, now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. So once more we see this is not about just feeding the people, but teaching them. Which is why they were to keep a jar of manna in the tabernacle throughout the generations, and it wouldn't rot or breed worms. Something that the Lord supernaturally is going to preserve for them throughout all their generations so that they would see and be reminded of the glory of the Lord in providing for them as a perpetual remembrance. It's one of the reasons why in the New Covenant the Lord has left us the Lord's Supper. That every, when we gather, we'd see here's the bread, here's the wine that we would remember. His body broken for us, his blood spilt for us, that we would see it and remember what he's done. So they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, so that you would remember how I provided and cared for you. And I think we all need these kinds of jars in our lives. Just Think for a minute, what are the things you keep around you, the journals, the pictures, the verses you've circled that just remind you of God's faithfulness throughout your life, that just help you keep remembering all the great things that He has done so that when those dark days come, those hard hours where He seems far away, you can call to mind. Just pull out your little jars and see, here's the ways He's fed me. Here's the places where he's been faithful. Just those kinds of remembrance. Or, or do we just blow so fast through life we don't even think about it? We don't slow down long enough to reflect on God's goodness. It's one of the great reasons for meditation, for quietness, for taking God's word, reading it, and just reflecting on all the ways in which God's word has intersected with your life and make a jar of it. <laughs> Store it away. Ask the Spirit to help you keep remembering God's faithfulness. Well, lesson learned, right? Well, not exactly. Like us, one lap around the track isn't enough. So we've got to go again. Chapter 17, verse 1. And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. 
Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Same song, new verse, but God's going to use it to teach a new truth. The Lord's been feeding them miraculously with manna from heaven, and now he's going to bring them to a place without water again to humble them, to expose them to teach them again. And again, they quarrel and they grumble. Once more, they accuse the Lord of trying to harm and destroy them. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The Lord's loving them and they perceive it as hateful. It really does take the Spirit of God to help us rightly interpret the works of God so that we'll rightly understand the love of God. We need the Spirit of God to help us see life through the Word of God so that we actually see His love for what it is as love because without it, it will feel like hate. It will make no sense to you when the pain comes, when suffering comes. We need the same help. And just think about when pain has entered your life, how often are you tempted to say, or do say, the Lord must hate me. The Lord must not care about me. The Lord must be far from me. Because how often do we interpret God and his word through the quality of our circumstances rather than interpret our circumstances through God and his word? The order of interpretation is vital. In learning, how do we see all of life, interpret all of my experiences through what God has said, through what he has promised, through how he interprets reality for me? We cannot trust our own eyes. We have to pray every day, Lord, help me see rightly. Help me understand what you're doing. That's why James says in James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. I've asked this of you before. How many of you want to be perfect and complete, not lacking anything? Just put up your hand. We all do it, right? Oh, yeah, I want to be perfect, complete, not lacking anything. Well, then James says, well, then count it all joy when you face trials of any kind. And every kind, because you know that's what the Lord will use to produce in you a steadfastness of faith. That's what he'll use to sanctify you, to transform you, to conform you to the image of his son. So count it joy when you face trials of every kind, because that's what's going to get you home. Well, God has to tell us that, because our flesh isn't going to tell us that. The world doesn't tell us that. Suffering doesn't just tell us that. So we need to be armed with the word of God in the middle of our trials so that we would rightly understand the love of God being worked out in our life. Because if you're in Christ, then every second of every trial you'll ever face is specifically designed and delivered by God to you for growing your faith, for killing your sin, for producing in you a steadfastness of hope in Jesus that won't ever break or fade away. 
every moment of every trial being specifically designed and delivered by God to you to produce those things in you, always worth it, always good. This is why we have to know him, the Lord, as he is. Because Satan has another narrative, right? He doesn't love you, doesn't care about you. This isn't for your good. With Adam and Eve at the tree, yeah, he just doesn't want you to be like him. Just break out on your own, eat the fruit, be your own God. You can have all this without him. He doesn't really want what's best for you. There's always competing narratives in the world of who God is and what he's doing. So we have to be constantly under the word of God reminded, no, no, this is who he is. This is what it means to know the Lord. In verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Don't you love that counsel? Okay, Lord, they're about to stone me. Well, just walk through them for a minute. It's usually not what you want to hear. Hey, can we do this from me out here? No, no, walk through them to the rock. But I'm going to show you the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So they're like city names at this point are not in a positive direction. They're all named after complaining and griping and quarreling and contending with the Lord. But yet it's in those places that he's gonna turn it into something sweet. That the Lord brings them to a place without water And they're ready to stone Moses to death. How do you really know what your greatest desires are? Well, you know by when you don't get it, you're ready to kill somebody. And you may not physically be about to do it, but in your heart, you're hating them. You're despising them. You're loathing them. So we may not recognize all the bloodthirsty thoughts that enter into our minds, but there's some times where the Lord can just bring you into the right kind of traffic at the right time of day in the right place when after a cascading number of events that he just exposes just our tendency in the flesh to hate and to scorn and to murder. This is not what your psychology textbooks will teach you, by the way, or your sociology textbooks or any university that this is the human condition. This is why the world still doesn't make sense to those apart from Christ because you can't understand what sin is and how nasty it gets, and how much it corrupts everything. So the people test the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So the Lord brings water from a rock. They had his promises, they had a rock present, and from that rock he would give them water to sustain them. And so the Lord's teaching them, I am the Lord, I'm your water, I'm your source of life, I'm your healer, I'm your bread, I'm your water. And one last lesson in verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. So they're going to go out to fight and Moses is going to be up on the mount. 
And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so that they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So this isn't because Moses is the one fighting the battle, but rather God is through Moses as the mediator winning the battle for them. This is what he's been doing all along, right? Just Moses as the mediator, but yet God as the power behind it. Verse 14, And the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord not only defeats their enemies, but then promises at a later date to once and for all defeat their enemies. He's going to do that through the ministry of Samuel. And then what they're going to take from it, what they're going to remember is verse 15, the Lord is my banner. He's our battle flag. He's our standard. He's the one that identifies who we are, to whom we belong, and who fights for us. Who's our refuge? Who's our deliverer? So we see in these chapters that the Lord is going to use four physical, tangible events to reveal four beautiful truths about who He is to His people. He is our healer. He is our bread. He is our water. He is our banner. And we can't miss this the way so many of the people of Israel missed it. That just getting them out of Egypt, that just getting them into the physical promised land was not the point. But Him becoming their Lord. Him becoming their Savior. Them being taken as His treasured possession. Just getting them out of Egypt, sticking them in a place with milk and honey where all their circumstances are rosy, missed the bigger thing of what God was doing. And in Deuteronomy 8, as Garrett read earlier, the Lord looks back and explains these years to us. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, there's number one, testing you, there's number two, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He says, look back on these 40 years, and I think he means with fondness. Remember, with fondness, how well I've cared for you in the wilderness these 40 years. Not many of us like that kind of sentence, right? 40 years in the wilderness. He says, remember it, how well I've cared for you. Doing three things, humbling you, testing you. In other words, to see what was in your heart. And it wasn't because God didn't know what was in their heart, because they didn't know what was in their heart. Because again, we can, somebody could ask us all day, hey, do you love God? We're like, oh yeah, I love God, totally dig him. Do you trust Jesus? Oh, yeah, he's great. He's like my savior. But then, 
when trouble comes, when pain comes, when suffering comes, when loss comes, when He does not make our life comfortable, now what comes out? To test you, see what was in your heart, but then not leave us there, but then to teach us that I'm your bread, I'm your water, I'm your banner, I'm your healer, that, that my word is your food, that my word is what you're to live on, not just your physical daily bread stuff, but everything I've promised, everything I've said to teach us dependence. He'll use hunger and a hundred other irritations to expose what's really in us and then to teach us who he really is as the answer to it. And of course, there's another, I think, even bigger, more precious truth that the Lord is teaching. And Garrett read from this in John chapter 6. And Jesus said to them, as his disciples and others that are listening, this is in the feeding of the 5,000, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is looking back at Exodus 16 and saying to this people, to Israel around him now, and saying, that, that manna from heaven, that was about me. I am the bread from heaven. I am the fulfillment of what God was doing there. And it's not Jesus trying to find like an illustration of himself. Let's see, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like bread. No, he's saying the whole reason bread exists is because he is the bread. And he's trying to give you some physical picture on earth of what it's like to need him. Hunger, what it's like to need him. Bread on earth, what it's like to receive him by faith and be fed by him. He's not looking at things around, okay, I'm kind of like water. No, no, I am the water. I'm the reason water exists. I'm the reason we created water, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is so that you would have some sense of what it means to thirst for me, to be satisfied in me. But the reason for enemy armies and battles is to help you realize that Jesus is your banner. As you look around at all the wars in the world today, at all the wars that are on our doorstep, you wouldn't just think, okay, this is just aimless, senseless fighting. No, these are all pictures. We need a refuge. We need a banner. We need God to protect us, care for us, provide for us. If all we care about is getting out of hard situations like Egypt, getting some food and drink in our bellies, combined with a little safety and security, then we will completely miss the point of the gospel. We will miss the beauty of the gospel. We will miss how God is using every little detail of every little circumstance of our redemption to show us something beautiful about him. So that we would believe something precious about him. That we'd be satisfied in him above all things. So now we can see the significance of Jesus' question to his disciples and to all of us. Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Am I your Lord? 
Am I your Savior? Am I the Son of God made flesh who you look to for redemption? Am I the one that you you turn from sin to trust in me and receive my righteousness as your righteousness, as my covering as your covering before the very wrath of God so that you can be spared on that day? Am I him to you? Because if he is, then number one, he is your healer. So relate to him as your healer every day. Doesn't mean you can't go see a doctor or take some medicine or do something like essential oils. It just means you realize those are just copies, little tastes, little temporary things. He's the healer. And he may use that stuff to help you or he may not. But that doesn't for one minute change the fact that on some day you will go in the ground and he will raise you and someday he will give you a glorified body and you will know, oh, he healed me. It means he is your bread. So relate to him every day as spiritual food. Taking his word as your nourishment. Eat it more often than physical food, in other words. Think of it more often than you do physical food. I mean, just add up the hours we spend every day preparing meals, eating meals, digesting meals, and then planning for the next meal, going shopping for meals, putting meals away in our cupboards, making more meals, eating them, digesting them. How much time do we spend on that every day? You know, how much time do we spend on his word, feeding on his word, being nourished by his word, Jesus being our bread, our nourishment? Also means he's your water. So relate to him as your strength, your source of life, his spirit as the wellspring of your life. Walk in the spirit, trust the spirit. Submit to the Spirit. It also means that He is your banner. So relate to Him as your protector. Relate to Him as your refuge. Relate to Him as the one that you run to before Netflix, that you run to before isolation, that you run to before drugs or alcohol or whatever else you may run to, that you run to Him before you run to power or status, or promotions, or elections, or elected officials, or whatever it is that we're tempted to, there's my refuge. There's my banner. And we never really know what those are till they're threatened, till it's stripped away. And so do we know that he is our banner? Relate to him as banner. Life can move so quickly. And we can so easily just be swept away into all the daily tasks and troubles without ever really seeing Christ in it all, without ever really sort of treasuring and knowing and relating to Jesus in the midst of it all. Suffering can come, and just his goodness, his faithfulness, his works can just be pushed so far from our minds. So we have to live here. We have to hear and believe his word and by his spirit's power walk in such a way that he is always our healer, our bread, our water, our banner. Lord, help us. Let me pray. Well, Father, these are precious truths to us, your people. Jesus is precious to us. He is our great physician. He is our bread, our water, our banner. Through him you have saved us. 
And for that, we give you glory. And we pray that every hour of every day, you would help us remember. You would help us to see your good hand in all the hard, in all the trouble, in all the pain, that we would be honest about what comes out of us, that we would look to you as the forgiver of our sins, that we would look to you as the one who strengthens us and helps us so that you would sustain us until that day when we're face to face with you and all our troubles are no more and only Christ forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.